What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Genesis chapter 15, where God came and spoke to Abram, and uh, Abram was very honest with the Lord, very honest with how he felt and the frustration of waiting for so long for God to fulfill his promise, and and basically Abram asked, where is the son you promised me, because all I have right now is Eliezer, who's my servant, I don't have any heir, and God makes very clear to Abram, no, this is not going to be your heir. You are going to have a son from your own body. And he takes Abram outside and he has him look at the stars. And he says, you know what? If you can count the stars, so shall your descendants be. And in that moment, Abram believes what the Lord promised. He believed that he'll have a son. He believed that he'll have these great descendants. And God accounted that to him for righteousness. And so God helps Abram believe this promise of a son, but God also needed to help Abram believe the promise of the uh, promised land. And so God reminds him, hey, you and your descendants after you are going to have all of this promised land. And once again, Abram's very honest with how he feels. And he says, you know, how do do I know that I'm going to inherit this promised land? God, basically, you need to prove it to me. And so God proves it by making a covenant with Abram. And we noted that covenant are very different than the kind of contracts we signed today where they took five animals and they cut them in half and they divided the parts. And, you know, both parties were meant to walk through the animals repeating the, you know, contract, uh, repeating what it is that they were making a covenant with. But we noted that this was actually a little unique because who walked through the animals? Only God did. Abram did not. And why was that important? Yeah, the covenant is completely based on God, on who he is. And so we know that it's not going to fail because God can't fail. If it was a a two-party one, then it would be, okay, God's got to keep his deal, but also Abram has to keep his end out of it. If Abram doesn't keep his end of the bargain, then the covenant could fall apart. But it was called a unilateral or one-sided covenant where God did it all and he is responsible for it all. Now, besides Abram, who would have the most impact on their life for the promise that Abram's going to have a son and a promise that they're going to have many descendants? Who would it impact the most besides him? Yeah, his wife, right? <laughs> She's the one who's going to have to get pregnant. She's the one who, you know, uh, is going to be a part of this. So she definitely would be the one besides Abram who this would impact the most. And if you remember, God first called Abram when he was 75 years old. That was the first time he got this promise that he's going to have a son. And Sarai is 65 years old when this happens. But at this point in time, they don't have any children. Why is that? She's barren. Sarai can't have any children. So this is uh, the problem that they have. Now, I think it's very important to note this because I've known several women who 
struggled with infertility, struggled with barrenness. And, you know, it's something that's very difficult. But, you know, in our culture, we sympathize with ladies who are dealing with that. We try to encourage them. We try to help them. We have more medical technology than they would have back in that day. But uh, the cultures that we have are very different. Our culture, very sympathetic. Their culture was not sympathetic in the least. And that culture that Sarah lived in, women had one main responsibility when they were married. There was one main role for a wife, and that was to produce children for her husband. So women in that culture did not have careers. They had children. And they stayed at home, and they took care of them, and that was their main focus. That was their main worth in that society. Now, this is important to and for us to understand, because it was such a big deal in that society, actually a husband could legally divorce his wife if she didn't bear him children, if she was barren. That's how big of a deal it was. And women who couldn't have children were viewed as worthless. They were often despised. Uh, and so I want you to try to take a moment as we approach chapter 16, because we're going to see uh, the response of Sarah. We really haven't got to see much from her. But before we do that, I want you to think of what it would be like to be barren in that culture. You know, Jenny and I, when we started to try to have children, uh, Jenny got pregnant right away and, you know, we were all excited and we, you know, called our family, we called friends, told everybody the good news, uh, and it was just a, a great time and, you know, it made me realize even more that I wanted to have children. We decided, you know, we're going to wait three years and then we're going to start and, you know, I was ready now and I was so excited, we're pregnant, this is going to happen, uh, and then about a week after that, Jenny had a miscarriage. And so that was very difficult, but, you know, after uh, a few months, we waited, and then we decided, you know, we're going to try again. And once again, Jenny got pregnant right away, but this time we wanted to wait a bit longer before we would tell anyone because we were concerned that we'd have another miscarriage. So after a couple weeks beyond the point of our last miscarriage, we thought, you know what, we've, we've made it long enough now, everything's going to be good. We call our family, we tell them the good news, and that exact same night, we call them in the day, that night, we have our second miscarriage. Now, you know, after dealing with that, I know both of us started thinking thoughts of like, will we be able to have kids? This is something that's going to, you know, be able to happen for us. And it was really kind of just a, a year span of time uh, before we ultimately got pregnant with Scarlett that we started thinking, you know, is this something that's going to take place? And I'm sure if it lasted longer than a year, it would have been much more difficult. And I bring this up to try to imagine how Sarai especially, but Abram as well, felt, you know, five years in. You know, they've been trying to have kids five years now. They're not able to. I'm sure the grandparents are, hey, are you guys trying? You know, are you, are you going to have kids? When are we going to get our grandchildren and friends and stuff? You know, are you, you trying to have kids? And they would have to say, well, yes, we are trying, but it's not happening. Another year goes by, another year goes by. Imagine what it would have been like after 10 years. You know, it was interesting. I read a scholar who said back in that time that it was actually after 10 years of trying to have children that a woman was officially labeled as barren. And so if that's true, now 10 years have gone by. She hasn't been able to have children. And now that horrible label is placed 
upon her and the shaming that came with it in that society as well. People now would look at her differently. She's not the woman who's trying to have children. She's the woman who can't have children. She's worthless as a wife. She can't produce children for her husband. Maybe even some from Abram's side thought, oh, Abram, I'm sure you wish you married someone else who actually could have children for you. You know, how hard it would have been for Sarai to be in that situation. But imagine 20 years. Imagine 30 years. You know, Sarai was 65 when God came and promised a son. 65. In that culture, people got married quite early. Abram's 10 years older than Sarai, so it's very likely that she got married young. But let's just say she got married at 20, which would probably be quite old in that culture, especially with Abram being 10 years older than her. But if she did get married at 20, she's still going to be barren for 45 years before she gets this promise. Imagine how difficult that was. This wasn't a couple years. This was her whole you know, adult life of trying to have children. And so for 35 years, she's despised. She's worthless in people's eyes. And, you know, imagine how desperate she would be. Imagine how much she would desire to have children. Now try to imagine, I'm sure she got to a point in time in her life, I'm sure it was before 65, where she finally just said, this isn't going to happen, I'm never going to have kids. And then her husband comes home. He's 75 years old, she's 65 years old, and he comes with this, you know, what she surely would have thought is this wild thing that he says, God met with me, and he promised us that we would have a child. How do you think... That news impacted her. What kind of emotions do you think would have gone through her mind? I'm sure there was a side of her that was extremely excited. Oh, it's finally going to happen. I've been waiting my whole life for this. This would be so great. But there's probably the other side as well. This is impossible. And even if I were to have a child, I'm just way too old. And, you know, so she's probably battling with both of these emotions. And one of the reasons I I want to you to put yourself in Sarah's shoes is because we're now going to see her respond for the first time. It's all been Abram. How does Abram responded to God's promise, to God's command? He hasn't been very obedient at the beginning. He didn't respond very well. You know, the last two chapters he's improved, but we haven't really heard anything about Sarah and, and how she's been doing with, with things. And so now we're coming to chapter 16 for the first time. We're going to see how she responds and she's not going to respond well. She's going to have and ask Abram do some things. and But I think, you know, we need to see the kind of the setting of things and, and how difficult it must have been for her to be in this role, which I think leads us to understand why she does some of the things that she does in this chapter. And so we're going to see how she responds, but then we're also going to see how Abram responds to her response. Uh, and the reality is that nobody's going to respond well in this chapter. This is a chapter of warning. This is a chapter of looking and seeing, you know, here are things that we shouldn't do, but yet we are often guilty of doing them. And so uh, there's a lot of good challenges that we're going to see here. Uh, we're going to look at six of them as we go through chapter 16. And so let's Look at verses 1 through 4 to start and see Sarai's response to the promise of God that she's going to have children. Verse 1 says this, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. 
And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. And Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Verse 1 here gives us two bits of information that are very important as we come into this chapter. What's the first thing that we're told there in verse 1? She still hasn't bore any children. This promise of God that she was going to have kids, it still hasn't happened yet. She's still barren and is not having kids. What's the second bit of information we're told there in verse 1? She has an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. Now, does anyone remember where she got this Egyptian maidservant named Hagar? Back in Egypt. You remember the circumstances surrounding getting this maidservant? What happened? Why does she get her? Pharaoh gives him, but why did Pharaoh want to give Abram and Sarai Hagar? Ah, Remember, they came up with a plan. Abram was scared. My wife's so beautiful. People are going to kill me and take her from me. So he says, tell people you're my sister. Lie to them. And she says, okay. She does lie. Pharaoh takes her, thinking about marrying her, basically pays Abram for it, gives him a bunch of stuff. One of the things that Abram gets is Hagar, this maidservant, in this process. And I think it's interesting to note as we go through this and, and how she's used within this, that if they never disobeyed and went to Egypt, and if they never in Egypt lied, she would have never been in their life. Uh, and we see now this problem that you know they got in the past sin is now coming, and it's going to be a problem in their present circumstances that they have. Uh, and so verse 1 and 2, they give us the situation. She still hasn't had any children, and she has this maidservant named Hagar. And so now let's see how Sarai responds to the situation where she's been waiting and waiting for God to fulfill the promise to have a son. It hasn't happened, so she's going to come up with her own plan. Let's see what she does in verse 2. So Sarai said to Abram, see now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Notice the first thing that Sarai says to Abram is, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. You know, God's stopping me from having children. But I think it's important to realize that this statement, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children, the implication here with what she's about to ask her husband to do is that the Lord has restrained me from ever having children. She's at a point now where she doesn't believe that she's ever going to bear children, that the promise that God had given is never actually going to happen. And I say that because there's no way if she thought, you know what, the Lord is just restraining me in the present, but in the future, I will have children. If she truly believed in the future she would have children, there's no way that she would ask her husband to do what she's about to ask him to do. And so the reality of where she's about to go and the plan she's about to make reveals to us that she was in a desperate place where she believed, I'm never going to have kids. And so I need to come up with a plan to do something for me to have Children And note what she plans here. There's a practical thing that she does, and there's also uh, 
the lengths in which she's willing to go. Verse 2 tells us the practical thing she does. What's the practical thing that she asks Abram, her husband, to do? Sin. Sin, in what way? <laughs> yeah. Hagar, I want, husband, I want you to go and sleep with Hagar, and hopefully you can have a child through her. So that's the practical plan. All right, I don't believe that I'm ever going to have children. So Abram, you need to have children through Hagar. But verse 3 shows the lengths in which she's willing to go because notice what we're told. She took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. I mean, this is pretty amazing that she's willing to go to these lengths. So you know what? I don't just want you to sleep with my maid. I want you to take her as a wife. Now, when you hear a plan like this, you got to ask yourself, where in the world did this idea come from? You know, was she praying in her room in the morning and God just said, Here are, here's the plan. Here's what I want you to do, Sarai. Or... Did she just come up with this on her own or or is there something that has led her to gain this idea? Well, the idea that she gets here is not something that was new to herself. It was something that the world around her practiced. So she didn't just come up with it and definitely wasn't something that God told her to do. She looked around at the world. She looked around at the culture. She looked at how other barren women responded to their barrenness to get children, and she decided, you know what? Let's do what the world does. Let's put into practice what the world does. Adam Clark shares some insight about this worldly practice. He says this, There are instances of women at this time when barren, consenting to their husbands marrying a second wife for the sake of children, and second marriages on this account without consent were very common. There are ancient documents that reveal this practice of, you know, a wife giving, you know, a maid to her husband or husband taking that person on as a wife, you know, polygamy, but also, you know, to have children. And the ultimate reason for this was because the woman who gave the slave to her husband, she could claim the child that they had. And that's Sarah's plan. Hey, you have a child with Hagar and I will claim that as my own. And within that culture, that was Perfectly acceptable. You know what? That will be recognized as Sarai and Abram's child, and Hagar will just be kind of the surrogate mother, so to speak, in the situation. Now, this is why Sarai says in verse 2, I shall obtain children by her. Because that's her plan. Uh, That's how I'm going to get a child. It's going to be through Hagar and my husband sleeping with her. So this plan that Sarai comes up with is something that the world was doing. It's something that the world accepted. But you know, Sarai missed something. Very important. Just because the world accepts a plan or a world accepts a, a, a way of action does not mean that God accepts it. And it doesn't mean that God is directing you to do it. She's looking around saying, hey, the world thinks this is a good idea, so it should be a good idea for me and my husband. But it wasn't. And I think it's an important thing to realize that when we follow the world's plan, the world's ways, the way the world does things, we can guarantee results that we're going to see here in this chapter. Lots of problems are going to come to them and they'll come to us as well when we follow the way of the world over the way of the Lord. Now, before we start judging her too harshly for her plan, recognize how desperate she must have been. 
I mean, this goes against the nature of women. You do not as a woman ever want to give your husband to another woman, especially in a sexual way. I mean, there's no woman who's like, hey, I really want my husband to go sleep with so-and-so and marry her as well and bring her into our home. I mean, that just goes against what women desire within their relationship with their husband. So it shows how desperate she is. It shows that I'm willing to go to these lengths because I am so desperate for a child. It's been so long. I have dealt with so much, you know, despised people and feeling worthless and all the things that have happened for so many years that she's got to this desperate situation and she's ready to do what she can do to make this happen. And I want to bring that up because as we approach what she does and the problems that go with it, Realize, you know what, oftentimes we get into desperate situations and that's really kind of where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, for us because we can have really good character and do, you know, godly things as Christians. But all of a sudden, when we find ourselves in what we determine as a desperate situation, many times we choose to do things that are very compromising. We choose to do things that are very sinful. We choose to do things that we normally probably wouldn't do if we weren't in that desperate situation. But it kind of reveals where we're at, that we don't have enough character to stand strong even when things are that difficult. And so, you know, as we look at Sarai, instead of like, how could she realize, you know what, when we're in hard, difficult, desperate situations like she, we often make foolish mistakes and do these things as well. And the first thing I want you to notice about Sarai's response is that because God's promise is taking so long, she jumps to the wrong conclusion. Ten years have gone by. Man, Lord, you're taking so long. We saw this in the last chapter with Abram. He was struggling with the length of time that God had yet to fulfill the promise. And and we all can relate to that. And it makes her conclude something that is not true. She thinks she's the problem. God, the reason you haven't fulfilled this is because of me. You can't use me. I can never have children. This is, I'm the issue. I'm the problem. I'm the reason why this hasn't happened. We've been promised a child, but I can't have children. And so we just need to use Hagar instead. Now, as you read forward in Genesis, you realize she's not the problem at all. She feels that way. She thinks that way. She's she's willing to kind of sidestep herself and allow her husband to be with someone else because she thinks that she's the problem. And the reason she's come to that conclusion is because God has taken so long that she thinks surely she must be the issue. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt, you know what, God's not moving fast enough. And then all of a sudden you start to think, well, maybe it's because of me. The reason of the delay is because of me. The reason that things aren't happening must be because of me. I must have some problem. I must have something that's going on where God is not moving because of me. Several years ago, I listened to a pastor share about his experience in starting a church in Germany. And, you know, Europe is much harder uh, soil than here in America. And he felt when he went that God promised him that he would greatly bless the ministry more than most that were there. And he went with this promise and expecting this. And after a few years and just seeing very little growth, especially into what he was expecting, he was struggling and he was starting to conclude, you know, why aren't people coming? Why aren't more things happening? Surely God would have fulfilled his promise by now. The problem must be me. I must be the reason things aren't happening. If someone else took over this church, if another person pastored here, then 
things would change. And so this man called his pastor, which was Chuck Smith, and he said, you know what, here's the situation. I feel like God's promised me this and things aren't happening. And, you know, I just want you to send someone else to take over the church, someone that, you know, God can work through and move because obviously that person isn't going to be me. And Pastor Chuck just said to him, you know what, I encourage you just to wait six more months before making a decision about leaving and then, you know, we'll readdress it. And so he waits that time and, you know, he just in that time feels like, no, he's supposed to continue there. And after several more years, it starts to grow and grow. And now he actually has the, the biggest Calvary Chapel in all of Europe. But God fulfilled the promise to bless that ministry, but he almost walked away. He thought he was the problem. Well, it's taking so long because of me, instead of realizing that, no, God has all sorts of reasons why he delays. And he jumped to the wrong conclusion that he was the problem because he didn't move or God didn't move according to his timing. And we see this with Sarai. She jumps to the wrong conclusion. I must be the problem because God doesn't move in my timing. So here we have the first lesson from this chapter that I want us to take note of. Be careful not to jump to wrong conclusions because God is delaying his promises. You know, we can jump to a lot of wrong conclusions. This is just one specific one where we conclude, hey, I must be the reason. I must be the problem. It must be all about me. And there are instances in Scripture where our sin can hinder things. But oftentimes, I think we conclude things like Sarah did that are completely wrong. You know, we're going to see that God's not delaying for Sarah at all. She's not the problem at all. God wants glory. And even though they're 75 and 65, we think, wow, that's old. God's going to wait till they're 90 and 100. Why? Because he wants them so far beyond childbearing age that is a complete miracle to anyone who looks, to anyone who sees, and so that he gets all the glory. Not just, wow, that's abnormal. Not too many people get pregnant at that age. No, he wants people to say, that's a miracle. There's no way it could happen unless God did it. So he waits and they're going to be waiting quite a long time even from now. But God's purpose is for himself to get the glory. It had nothing to do with Sarai being the problem. The second thing I want you to notice here about her response is she puts her limitations on God. You know, she looks and she's seen, hey, I'm 65 years old. I have this physical inability to have children. I am barren. I have been barren for so many years. I've tried all that I could. Nothing's ever worked. So she is convinced it's physically impossible for her to have children. And so she takes the limitation that she can see. I, I, I cannot see how this would happen. And she puts that limitation on God as well. You know, have you ever been in a situation where you put limitations on God? Yeah, it's hard for me, so it must be hard for God. I can't do it, so surely God couldn't do it. I can't figure out how this would work out, so surely God couldn't figure it out either. You know, when I graduated from high school, I was confident that God was clearly calling me to go to Calvary Chapel School of Evangelism, and I really wanted to go, uh, but I had two problems. I didn't have money to go, and I didn't have a car. I didn't have any transportation to get there. It was about an hour from where I lived, uh, and I just felt like the Lord saying, I'm going to take care of this for you, and week after week went by and got closer and closer to the start of the semester, and finally, it was only one week before the semester was going to start, and I just came to the conclusion, okay, I'm not going. You know, I still don't have the money. I don't have a car. I don't have transportation. There's no way that's coming together in a week. And so I honestly just kind of checked out. All right, Lord, what's next? Obviously, this isn't it. 
And the next day, a friend of mine calls me and says, hey, I've decided to go to the school of evangelism, and I want to pick you up each day. I know you don't have a car. I know you want to go. I want to be your ride. So I'm thinking, all right, great. One thing down, transportation taken care of, but I still have no money. So I ride with him the first day to the school, show up, find out my first month of tuition had been anonymously paid for. And every single month after that, the same thing. All right, I got to pay my tuition again. And someone had anonymously paid. And God just took care of it and reminded me not to put my limitations on him. I thought there's no way this could happen. But God's thinking this is so easy for me. Getting you a ride, getting you a little money for the school. That's no problem. I got it. I'll take care of it. Just trust me. Sarah, I struggled with this. I think we do as well, which brings us to the second lesson I want us to take from this chapter. Be careful not to put your limitations on God because God is not limited. That's something that's so important for us to remember. God has no limitations except that he can't sin, but when it comes to like the limitation of him helping us, he's not limited. Nothing's too hard for him. He created everything out of nothing. If we can believe Genesis chapter 1, we shouldn't be having any issues with thinking, how can God deal with my circumstances or situations now? Whatever is seemingly impossible to us, God can definitely handle it. The third thing I want you to note about Sarai's response is she asks Abram, her husband, to sin. She's asking him to sleep with another woman. She's asking him to commit polygamy and marry another woman. And she's asking him to deny the promise that God had given to them, which would be that he would provide a child through Abram and Sarah. So how does Abram respond? His wife says, ultimately, here's my plan. It's a sinful plan. It's the world's plan. Are you willing to do it? At the end of verse 2, what does Abram do? He heeds the voice of his wife. You know, I would say the majority of time, if you're a married man, heeding the voice of your wife is a very wise thing to do, but not when she's asking you to sin. That's the time when you need to draw the line. That's the time where you need to say, absolutely not. Here we see a problem in Abram that we also saw back in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam. Eve comes to Adam and says, Sin, basically. And Adam just says, okay, and he does it. That's what we see here with Sarai and Abram. Here, I want you to do this sinful plan with me, and Abram does it. Now, how should have Abram responded to this request? No? And what should he have reminded her of? God's promise. No, this is not the way we're going to do it, Sarah. I understand your frustration. I'm frustrated as well. You know, the Lord just reminded me of how he's working. We just got to hold on and wait and trust. He should have been there to help her, been there to stand strong, even though that she was wanting to go forward with something that he knew was wrong. But he doesn't. I think it's important to note that we already saw this with Abram and Sarah, but the, the roles were reversed. Abram... In Egypt, asked Sarai, his wife, to sin. Sarai, you need to lie. You need to tell everybody you're my sister so nothing bad happens to me. And she goes along with it. She chooses to listen and obey and do what he said. Now the roles are reversed. She's the one asking Abram to sin. And he responds just like she did in Egypt. He goes along with it and chooses to sin. 
You know, what we see here in this marriage is something very common in marriages today. In marriage, we often want to please our spouse, and I think that's a great thing when you want to please your spouse, you want to make your spouse happy, that's a a good thing to have in your relationship, until that desire to please your spouse leads you to a place where you're willing to commit sin in order for them to have the pleasure that they're seeking. It's been said, a happy wife makes for a happy life. And there's a lot of truth to that statement until sin is the thing that you have to do and to make her happy. Because once you start sinning, the happy life's gone because the problems that are going to come because of your sin are going to rob you of that happy life. As Christians, there is a relationship that should be, it's not often, but it should be more important than our relationship with our spouse. What relationship is that? Absolutely. Our relationship with God. We should desire to please God, to obey God more than our spouse. And this is where, when it comes to the role of obedience and the role of authority, we always have to recognize there is an authority above us beyond a husband, beyond the government, beyond you know whatever it is that we look at biblically, there is God's authority. And so if your husband or your wife says to you, you know what, you need to do this sinful behavior, your response should be, I have a higher authority that I have to obey here. I have a higher authority that I have to please, and that is God. And so I'm not going to please you in sinning for you and with you because I know that it will displease the Lord and be disobedient to him. But too often, especially husbands in our culture today who have kind of you know sat back and not wanted to take the spiritual head of their home and the spiritual leadership in their home, they're asked to do things that are wrong and compromising, and they're willing just to go with it so they don't have to deal with any of the repercussions of saying no, but they need to stand up for what's true. They need to stand up for what's biblical. They need to stand and say, hey, I'm accountable to God. And a wife in the same way. There's many wives whose husbands are asking them to do things that are sinful like Abram did to Sarai back in Egypt. And she needed to say, no, I'm not lying for you. That's not right. Let's trust the Lord. Let's trust that he'll take care of us. We've got to be answerable to him first. Which brings us to the third lesson I want us to take note of. Don't ask others to sin and don't sin because someone has asked you. Instead, please and obey God. You know, I know growing up and probably with a lot of young people, one of the reasons we do so much sinful, stupid stuff is peer pressure. You know, there's people that we want to please. And so, you know, we're willing to do things that we normally probably wouldn't. We engage in things that maybe we never we would before because we want to please that certain group or that girl or that guy or whoever it may be. There's that person that we want to please. And now all of a sudden we're willing to compromise ourselves and do things that we shouldn't do in order to please them and to get them to like us in some way. And we need to be careful, especially as believers, we should say, hey, I need to be pleasing the Lord, obeying him. That should be the most important thing to me. The fourth thing I want you to notice about Sarai's response, also in Abram as well, is she wants to help God out in her flesh. It's been 10 years, surely God I'm supposed to intervene. It's taken so long. You need my help. The problem is you can't really accomplish this without me. And so I got a plan. I got a plan to make this work and I'm going to do it in my flesh. I'm going to help you accomplish what seemingly you can't accomplish on your own because you haven't done it yet. And so through my flesh, I'm going to help you. But notice that Sarah offers a physical solution to a supernatural problem, which never works. 
And we do this so often. Hey, I got my solution to this. Well, it's a fleshly physical solution to a supernatural issue. You need a miracle. And nothing that you are going to produce in your flesh is going to create that. You know, I think Sarah believed the lie that I hear many people quote because they think it's in the Bible. It's not. God helps those who help themselves. Read from Genesis to Revelation. You're not going to find that in Scripture because it's not biblical. Benjamin Franklin is actually one who said it. It wasn't the original uh, person who did, but he brought it to many people's way of thinking. You know, God does not help those who help themselves. That's not a biblical truth. That's not something we see in Scripture. Biblically, we see God helps those who trust in him and depend on him. Those who try to do it on their own, those who come up with their own plans, those through their own pride think, I can handle this. That's not those who God blesses. He says he resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. That's a very contrary belief system to what the scriptures teach. And so she comes up with her own plan. I got to help God out. I'm going to do this for him. Abram, you're going to join me in this. Abram listens to her. And I want you to recognize what happens. All right, here's the plan. I'm going to sleep with Hagar Notice what verse 4 tells us. There's two consequences to this. What's the first one? She gets pregnant. And what's the second thing? Ah. So here are two things that happen. Here's the plan. I'm, I'm going to have a child through Hagar and my husband. And when I get that child, no one's going to despise me anymore. I'm finally going to have a child. It's going to be so great. I'm going to be accepted as a mother who can actually provide a, a child for her husband. And the first thing that happens, you would think would make her happy. But I think actually it probably made her sad as well. Because you know what? There was probably always that wonder of maybe it's Abram. That's the problem. Maybe the reason we can't have kids is actually him. He's the issue and I have nothing wrong with me. Well, now she knows she's the problem because he sleeps with Hagar. Hagar gets pregnant. What does that reveal to her? I'm the barren one. I'm the problem. This whole time it has been me. And that would have magnified things for her. I don't think that that would have been as pleasant of realizing, oh, it did work. He was able to get her pregnant. That means I am the issue here. But the worst part of all, is when Hagar gets pregnant, what does she do? She despises Sarah. Remember in that culture, oh, if you can't have children, you were despised. And now her servant, the one that she has given to her husband to produce this child so she wouldn't be despised, despises her. The exact opposite of what she desired happens. She wants to not be despised, and now she is despised by the woman who can get pregnant from her husband when she can't. Things have gone very bad. Sarah and Abram try to help God out in the flesh, and the results are ultimately disastrous for them. And I think this is a great reminder for us, because I'm sure each one of you at some point in time in your life have tried to help God out, thought, you know what, God, you're not moving fast enough. You need my assistance. I'll get in here and do this and that. And, and through our fleshly efforts and our human ingenuity, we come up with plans that we implement thinking that God needs us to help him. And it always ends badly. You know, when I was a missionary in Scotland, 
The rule of getting a missionary visa was that you could not work at all while you were over there for six years while you're on that visa. Uh, you had to have all your support from America. And my second year there, I had several months in a row where the support was low. And I'm thinking, all right, Lord, what's going on? You know, you need to take care of me here. And I didn't feel like it was happening. So I came up with a, a plan. You know, I got it. I got it. I can deal with this myself. I know it's against the visa rules, but you know, who's going to actually know? I'll just go get a job and I will provide the money to make up for the lack that's coming in support. And so I had a friend who knew a guy who was hiring and said, you'd be perfect for this. This will work out. I can get you this job. No problem. And so I had this plan to do this, even though it was against the government's rules. And fortunately for me, I met with a pastor friend of mine and, you know, just kind of shared the circumstance. And I said, here, this is what I'm planning on doing. He said, don't do it. We had a missionary come here a few years ago who did this and the government found out about it. They kicked him out of the country and they won't let him back in. Uh, and so, you know, that was a, a pretty big eye-opening shock, and I decided, all right, I'm not going to do it. The next month was my biggest month up to that point in time. God took care of it. But I almost made a very, very foolish decision that could have been, you know, devastating to the ministry there, uh, getting kicked out of the country, thinking, you know, I just need to help you out, God. I just need to get this job and do this stuff and try to justify it. A man shall not work, he shall not eat. You know, you got these biblical passages you can throw out there. Unfortunately, the Lord was gracious to me in that. But it brings us to the fourth lesson I want us to take from this chapter. Never try to help God out in the flesh. He doesn't need it, and the results are always disastrous. I don't like to wait. I'm sure you don't like to wait either, but it's so much better to wait for God than to try to help him out because the problems that come from waiting are nothing compared to the problems that we bring when we try to help God out in the flesh. So the result now is Hagar's pregnant. She despises Sarai. And now they, they've sinned and their sin has brought them consequences. And now they're in a place that we all are. We, we sin and the sin brings a consequence to our life. And now we have another choice. How are we going to respond to the consequences that have come? How are we going to respond to the new situation that we find ourselves in because we've sinned? Well, let's see how Abram and Sarah respond, verses 5 and 6. Then Sarai said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between me, you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And he went, and when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Notice how Sarai responds. There's this disastrous result, which she wasn't expecting. Hagar is pregnant. She's despising her. How does she respond to her husband? She blames him. <laughs> Look what she says. My wrong be upon you, Abram. You're the reason this happened. Wait a second. Who came up with this plan, honey? You're the one who told me to do this. No, it's your fault, Abram. Why didn't you stop this? I think it's so interesting when we look back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, they sin, and what do they do? The first thing they do when they get called out for it, they try to blame someone else. Adam says, the woman that you gave me, I'm blaming you and, and God and the woman. And then she says, the serpent made me do it. Both of them blame someone else instead of taking responsibility for their own actions. We see the same thing here with Sarai. She blames Abram instead of saying, hey, I came up with this plan. 
I asked my husband to do this, and so I am guilty. Now, there is a part that Abram has to take responsibility for. He's part of this. He should have said no. He should have reminded her of God's promise. He should have been a a good, godly husband to help her in this and not allow this to go forward. But now he has another opportunity. He was kind of a, a spiritual coward. He didn't do the role that he should have the first time, but now he has another opportunity. Okay, now we're facing the consequences. I should have been the man who stood up and did what was right. Now I got another opportunity. You're wanting to do something quite harsh to Hagar and my, well, pregnant Hagar. She hasn't done anything deserving of anything except, well, I guess you could say despising you. But, um, you know, he's in this place now and notice what he does. How does he respond? Yes. Honey, do whatever you want. She's your maid. He doesn't stand up for his now new wife with the now baby that he now is the father for. He just kind of leaves it with her, whatever you want to do. And she deals harshly with Hagar. Bob de Finnebaum said this about Abram. Abram should have learned that his passivity was not piety. Letting Sarai have her way was relinquishing his leadership. He was the accomplice to sin, but refusing to resist it or to rebuke Sarai. Sarai's stinging rebuke served only to cause Abram to retreat further. He did not acknowledge his sin, nor did he confront Sarai with hers. Instead, he persisted in allowing Sarai to have her own way. Notice that their problems start because they try to help God out in the flesh. Their sin is the cause of this issue, but now that there are consequences that bring a new issue, in order to get out of their consequences, they try in the flesh to do it. So they've sinned to get here, and now they think they can sin to get out of the circumstance that they're in, and it doesn't work. The problems just keep getting worse. Sarah blames Abram, deals harshly with Hagar, Abram just relinquishes his spiritual authority and lets Sarah do what she wants. I'm sure all of us here have gotten into problems because of our own sin, and we've concluded, I can get myself out. I'll come up with a new scheme. I'll come up in my own wisdom and my own sinful planning to get myself out of the consequence that I deserve because of the sin that I just committed. Back when I was in high school, I got caught cheating on an English test and I was sent to the principal's office and he did something kind of odd. He said, I want you to call your parents and while I listen here, I want you to tell them what you've done. And I said, okay. So I I saw a little golden opportunity. We had moved not long before and our old number was the number that I called. No, no one would, no one would pick up. And so I called that and, you know, no one's there and, uh, you know, sorry, they're not home. And so he says, all right, well, I want you to go home. And I want you to tell them what you've done when you get home and I will be calling them in the next couple days. And I said, oh, that's great. But do you have our new number? No, I don't have our new number. Well, let me give you our new number. And so I give him the number of our old number. And I'm thinking, I'm in a good place here. My parents never found out about it. Months go by. And then they have the, the parent-teacher conference where the, you know, the teachers can talk bad about the kids behind their back to the parents. Uh, and so my English teacher is there, and she says, you know what, Matthew has done so much better since he got caught cheating. And then the principal also comes to them and says, you know what, you guys must have done a great job dealing with him because we haven't caught him cheating again. 
Now, both these things are very new information. So they get home, and obviously they're furious at me, not just because I cheated, but the lengths that I went to try to get out of it and deceive them, uh, and the consequences for me were far worse than they would have been before. And so all of us have those circumstances where we find ourselves in a situation because of our sin, we try to get out of it with more sin, and the ultimate result is it just makes the problem worse. The fifth lesson I want us to take from this chapter is when we get ourselves into problems because of the flesh, don't try to get out of the problem by the flesh. It only makes things worse. So one of the fleshly responses that Sarai does is she deals very harshly with Hagar and Hagar responds by running away. A very reasonable response. She does not want to be there anymore. She's forced to sleep with a 75-year-old man. She gets pregnant by him. Now the woman who asked him to do it is super upset with her, deals with her harshly. Who knows ultimately what that means, but she's out of there. I don't want to be here anymore. And I want you to note who meets her as she flees to the wilderness. Verse 7 says this. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur, And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall be counted, uh, shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, You are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, I have have I also here seen him who sees me. Therefore, the well called Berleah Roy observe is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. So Hagar's in this horrible situation. She flees to the wilderness and when she gets there we're told that she's met by the angel of the Lord. Now you'll note that the angel is capitalized. That's because those who translated the Bible believe that this is not just speaking about any old angel, which would be lowercase, but this is actually in reference to Jesus Christ. Remember when we looked at Melchizedek as a pre-Bethlehem occurrence of Jesus in the Old Testament? Here we have the angel of the Lord, and it doesn't just appear here. We see the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament, uh, and obviously the scholars who translated this, and I think for good reason, uh, agree that this is actually not just an angel, but this is a pre-incarnate Christ uh, coming to meet with her. And one of the things we see here for why they say that, in verse 10, uh, the angel says something that only God can do. He tells Hagar, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly. Angels don't have the ability to multiply someone's descendants. That's something that only God has a capacity to do. But if you go through the Old Testament, you will find the angel of the Lord appears to Abram on Mount Moriah, 
appears to Jacob, appears to Moses in the burning bush, appears to Joshua, Gideon, Samson's parents, and a few other instances. And with each one of these things, we see some connections with the angel of the Lord that helps us understand who could this be. We're told he has the power to give life. He's all-knowing. He's the judge of the earth. He has the ability to forgive sins, and he receives worship. All of the things only which God does. Uh, and so all of that is the reason why not just one instance, but all the instances together that we see the term the angel of the Lord and his appearance to different people, that this is speaking of Jesus Christ before Bethlehem coming and appearing to people. So Hagar has run into the wilderness and we're told the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. You know, one of the things I love about God, we tell, we're told that he'll never leave us or forsake us. You know, he's always there for us in the midst of our difficulty, in the midst of our struggles. I mean, here's the, the servant woman that many people say, well, just good ridden, who cares about her? No one cares about her. She's just a slave. God cares about her. God came and met her in the wilderness. And he asks her what she's doing, not because he doesn't know, but he wants her to respond. And she tells him that she's fleeing from Sarai. And he tells her to do something very difficult, something that I'm sure many people would not get counseling in churches today to do. Go back to that terrible situation. Go back under that woman and submit yourself back to her. Something important to remember is that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways, but his thoughts and his ways are perfect. And oftentimes we would conclude, <laughs> wait a second, Lord, Go back to the situation that's difficult for me. Go back to the situation where people don't like me. Stay in the situation where it's difficult. Surely you got something wrong. Surely, you know, that's not what you want from me. There's often times where God says, you know what? This is what I have for you. I know it's not pleasant, but it's my will for you. And we need to be willing to do it. And then Hagar is willing to be obedient and to go back. But I love the fact that God helps her just like he helped Abram. He helps her because I'm sure she's filled with fear. We don't even know how I mean, she could have been beaten. We don't know what dealt harshly is that doesn't describe it. But she surely has reason not to go back to Sarai. God says, I want you to go back. But he goes on to help her see why she can be confident of that. I'm sure she's worried about, I'm pregnant. Am I going to lose my baby? You know, what's going to happen here? And so God shares some information with her that will help her be willing to obey and do what he tells her to do. He says to her, you know what? I'm going to multiply your descendants. You're going to have a son. And this is the first time in scripture where someone is named before they're born. Another one that's very famous is John the Baptist. He's given his name before he's born by God. But Ishmael right here is given the name Ishmael, which means God hears. What a great name. She's going to remember for the rest of her life as she was there in the wilderness and she says, Ishmael, God hears. Because he does hear. He heard her cry as she was out in the wilderness. He heard what was going on. He came and he met her. And he says, now I want you to name your son this. God hears. God's encouraging her, helping her. And she responds by saying, you are the God who sees. You see me like I see you. You, you recognize me. You care about me. You see what's going on in my life. You see my problems. You see my situation. And I think this is something so wonderful 
about God, something that we miss so often that we think God is just kind of blind to our circumstances, blind to our trouble. Lord, you don't see, because if you would have seen, you would deal with this right now. Lord, you must not see, because if you saw, you would handle this in a different way. And we got to get away from the fact that, hey, just because he's not doing it our way doesn't mean he doesn't see, doesn't mean he doesn't have compassion, doesn't mean he's not there for us. Just like with Hagar, God wants to meet us where we're at. He wants to help us with what we're going through. And it brings us to the final lesson that I want us to take from this chapter. God sees you, he loves you, and wants to help you, so come to him for help. And I want you to think about something as we look at what happened in this chapter. If Sarai, when she was struggling with this, all the feelings that were going on. I'm so desperate to have a child. I'm just going to come up with my own plan. If she would have at that point in time sought God for help, she wouldn't have come up with that plan or at least she wouldn't have gone through with that plan. She could have allowed the Lord to minister to her. She could have allowed the Lord's wisdom to be given to her and it would have changed this whole chapter. All these negative things that have happened wouldn't have happened if she actually would have come to God for help. But you know what? Abram had an opportunity as well. Right when Sarai says, here's the plan. If he would have said, you know what? Let's just take a moment and pray. Let's take a moment and seek the Lord. Let's ask God if this is a good plan, if this is what he wants us to do, if this is how he wants us to move forward. And he would have come to the conclusion, this isn't right, this isn't good, this isn't something we should do. Let's not do it. But you know what? Even when their, their, their sin and their foolishness, which all of us have and we're all guilty of, they've sinned. And now they're facing the consequences of their sin. And once again, they have the opportunity to either try in their flesh to get out of it or to seek the Lord for help. And they could have come at that point in time after Hagar's pregnant, after they've done this foolish thing, and they could have come to the Lord, they could have repented, they could have said, Lord, I don't know what we were thinking. This is so foolish of us. We're guilty of this. We need help. We need you to come intervene. We got so many consequences now because of this and God could have come and helped them. But they didn't. They didn't come to him for help. They didn't seek him. And there's so many consequences that have come because of it. And so this chapter is a full of warnings of things we shouldn't do. Don't jump to the wrong conclusion because God's delaying his promises. Don't put your limitations on God. Don't ask others to sin. Don't sin because others ask you don't try and help God out in the flesh. Don't try to get out of problems by the flesh. But the thing we need to realize is one of the best ways to not do these things is to regularly come to God for help. Lord, I'm sinful. Lord, I'm weak. Lord, I give in to things more than I should. Lord, uh, you know, the, the voice of my wife or the voice of my husband, I want to please. And sometimes I, I just you know do what they say even though I know I shouldn't. Help me. If we would come for help, how much... These things that we're seeking to avoid would actually happen. But the problem is too often we try in ourselves and our own strength and our own ability to do this stuff like they did. And we have a similar story to tell of the consequences and problems that come because we have not sought the Lord's help and actually put it into practice. Any thoughts, any questions on this chapter and what we've looked at here with Abram and Sarah and Hagar. Oh, tongue can't me, 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 me